Well, I'm David Salem, happy to MC another episode of Real Vision and especially happy to have a fresh opportunity to compare notes with one of my very favorite people in the world, inside or outside finance, uh, Anders Brownworth. Um, Anders, I was thinking of all the conversations you and I have had over the years. <laughs> I think this is actually the first one we've ever done remotely, either by phone or, or video. Because we always get together in person, we usually go for a walk and we compare notes, and it's been a great joy and a privilege for me to do that with you over the years. But there's a specific reason why we're doing this virtually for our friends at Real Vision, which is that you've become kind of a goat of sorts, right? You know, we saw Alice and Felix in Tokyo, and of course, Kipchoge win a second gold medal, and we've got Brady here in New England. But you're sort of one of the goats of Real Vision because you've got... You've done one and only one video so far for Real Vision. It was a phenomenal demo of how a blockchain gets constructed. And last time I checked, it has sort of the highest ratio of votes of, you know, thumbs up to thumbs down in Real Vision history, subject to a respectable minimum. So all credit to you for that. And it's on really on the strength of that success that Real Vision wanted to bring you back and to have you provide a real-time demo of another really crucially important aspect of our increasingly digitized world. And that would be, how do you actually build a smart contract? So, to, you know, to your credit and our delight, you've agreed to do that right now. We're going to walk through a real-time demo. I encourage anyone who hasn't seen the first episode featuring you and Ash Bennington, where you do the blockchain construction, go back and watch that maybe before you watch the demo that's about to unfold. So, Anders, by prior agreement in an effort to sort of maximize the time for your demo and hopefully for some follow-up Q&A after you're through it, um, I'm going to just sort of turn things over to you again by prior agreement. Um, I might interject with a question or a comment for clarification purposes as you roll through it, but with profuse thanks for agreeing to do this, over to you. Thank you very much, and it's a pleasure to be back. And um I'll just start this off by saying I'm I'm an engineer and uh, I'm very interested in these technologies and uh, I, I have learned quite a bit from you on those walks around the pond uh, and so I, I you know I know uh, next to nothing about finance and and you've been very patiently uh, answering my questions so I hope to uh, re you know repay the favor as it were um, so yeah so I if if you've taken a look at the the previous talk the 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 arc of it was essentially why do we trust uh digital assets like what is it there that you can really take home and 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 trust and i did that by demonstrating a a an example blockchain and i showed how uh a, a sample token might work on that blockchain is a proof of work blockchain. All proof of work blockchains need a, uh, a base asset. So we looked at creating one of those and we looked at how you might uh, move that token around or, or, you know, in a sense, move money around. Well, there are other things you can put on a blockchain. Uh, you don't necessarily have to just have a single token. Uh, you might want to pose something uh, to the chain that uh, looks more like executable code that you could use in place of a standard stock uh, transaction. 
Uh, and in fact, this is the way that it works. So if you uh, create a transaction to send money from A to B, you're following a very simple kind of intuitive set of rules. I no longer have it. You do. Uh, net, we've no money has gained or lost in the system. We've just sort of, you know, transferred the power to spend that money from one person uh, to another, or really from one private key to another. So what we're going to do here is uh, pose a, uh, a smart contract, which is a little bit more complex than that. It doesn't simply just move money from one place to another. It could do many other things as well. We'll start with a very simple example. I promise uh, very, very easy to follow. Uh, if, if we switch to the screen here, uh, I'm going to uh, just take a look at a I've, I've made a, uh, a sample smart contract here that I'll call moolah, okay? So, so, you know, fake money or something. So this is a smart contract. And uh, as you can see, uh, there's, some, there's some license uh, stuff you want to put up top and you want to say what version of the compiler you're using. That's kind of basically boilerplate. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to describe a contract here called moolah. Okay, and it's everything between the opening uh, little bracket here and the closing one, wherever it is, uh, down a little bit. Um, and what we're going to do in this contract, because this is an ERC-20 coin that we're going to make, is we are going to define some, some standard uh, uh, functions that we have to define in order to make it a... Uh, an ERC-20 coin. And particularly that is we need to give it a name. Uh, we, it has to have a symbol, uh, just that, that was one of the things that they put in there. There's a number of decimals. And, and this is interesting because uh, all of the numbers, and you'll see this, all of the numbers are, are really just integers. And when we present these numbers, we want to place a decimal somewhere. And we're doing this all in integers to make the math exact. You don't want some floating point operation to, to overflow or be slightly under. That might change some of the least significant digits. So we'll do everything as integers, and then we'll just pick a point where we put the decimal kind of arbitrarily. To give you an idea, right, the dollar decimal point is, is two, two units in, two, uh, two uh, characters in, so that we can have, uh, you know, 100 pennies for one dollar. Uh, Anders, can I just please. sorry? Can I just jump in with a clarification? Maybe I'll ask the guys to jump off of your screen and show me. I'm holding. I don't think you can see me, but I'm holding something that's <laughs> well known to the audience. It's a single dollar bill, right? So bear with me here, Re really quickly. But this is essentially a contract, and some would say it's not a very smart contract because because it's been debased by ninety nine percent over the last one hundred and eight years, uh, but we can come back to that in the Q&A. Uh, but it's a contract because it's sort of a bare instrument. And it says, if you hold this piece of paper, carefully engineered by the Mint, uh, you can exchange it for something of value. Before 1971, you could literally exchange it for gold. Nixon closed the gold window 50 years ago this month. It's no longer exchangeable for gold, but it's a bare asset it's essentially, I'm, I'm overgeneralizing, but we have to for purposes of today's recording. Um, it's, a, it's a contract, if you will. So the smart contracts, and I know people are, now we can go back to your screen and the code. People are looking at it, it's in black and white. They can see the word solidity in the upper left-hand corner. You've mentioned ERC-20. 
So solidity is what's called, of course, Turing complete programming language. We can come back to what Turing completeness means. Uh, and it's been used by Ethereum to set forth a number of standards so that the Ethereum protocol can be useful to the world. And ERC-20 would be an Ethereum request for comment. So that would be one of the first sets of standards that the Ethereum Foundation, really the community, it started taking shape in 2015, right at the beginning, the dawn of Ethereum, when Vitalik Buterin introduced it to the world. And then it was sort of, it was launched after two years of back and forth, give and take and refinement. ERC-20 was launched as a way to standardize the creation of smart contracts of which, and this may be confusing to some viewers, final point and then back to you, uh, you know, cryptocurrencies are essentially a subset of smart contracts in the same way that a dollar is its currency. It's called fiat currency. It's sort of a contract, almost a social contract. So too, what we're going to walk through a smart contract, sorry, a cryptocurrency is a subset of smart contracts in Ethereum land tokens, particularly the cryptocurrencies and crypto tokens that you can create tend to be standardized around ERC-20 because it's a convenient way for people to achieve efficiency in creating these digital assets. All right, that was a mouthful back to you. Correct me if I said anything that you thought was an error and then proceed. No, that, that's a very helpful context. Uh, we joke that uh, smart contracts are neither smart nor contracts. Um, and uh, so, yeah, don't, don't, don't get lost in this. Uh, the ERC-20 standard is the 20th Ethereum you know, improvement, essentially. Uh, it's a you know, request for comment, but uh, this is essentially how things get voted on. Um, so th this is just a standard. Why might you do this? Well, if, you have, uh, if you're running an exchange and lots of people come with all their different uh, tokens and they all work differently, it's really tough for an exchange to, to you know, use it or a wallet manufacturer to have a wallet that works. So having a standard like this, uh, you know, some very basic things, the name, the symbol, as we're looking on the screen, uh, and the decimals and the total supply, these are all things that you, you really want to know as a uh, wallet implementer, for example. An exchange, of course, is just a wallet. It's a giant wallet. Um, so uh, a number of these, uh, you know, kind of standards and, and what we're doing here, you'll you'll just see is is kind of too simplistic, too simplistic. OK, but but these are the you know, this is kind of the very basics of what you would need to do. And by the way, I, uh, we could uh, touch on it later. But if you were to actually make an ERC-20 contract in the real world, I would not. Uh, implement it the way I'm showing you here. There are much more safe ways to, to do this, um, in, in particular using libraries, but we, we can ignore that. Um, I'm skipping over a number of things, hopefully to get to a point relatively quickly so we get a, uh, you know, kind of a cohesive view of how the whole thing works. Um, what I'm doing here with string and, and int, eight, and all of these things, these are just uh, saying what types of characters. No, string is just a string of letters. Okay, and you'll see this one a number of times, uint256. That's an unsigned integer of 256 bits long. Okay, so that just means it's a big integer, a big uh, round number. Um, so... I also have these things called mappings. 
And I'm going to create a mapping called balances that holds these things called addresses that are numbers. You, and, you know, they, they point to numbers. So I'm going to stuff into this balances uh, variable here addresses relating to some number, the balance that that address has. And this is simply how we track all of the owners, all of the holders of a currency in an ERC-20 uh, coin. This is the most, li the most likely way you would implement it. I also have this reverse mapping that allows you to go backwards. You can kind of um, sort of ignore that. Then I define several events. We can, we can ignore what the events are, but uh, you know, just so you know, I'll fire off an event that says, hey, something was transferred, or an approval. We'll go over that later. Okay, so I have this thing here uh, called the constructor. Uh, and this is what executes when this contract first gets created on chain. So I'm gonna you know, deploy it to the chain. You'll see it in, in, in a few minutes. And what it will do is set some basics. I could have hard set these in code, but it's more interesting to, to watch it happen in the constructor. So the first thing I do, I go into my stack of balances and I go to the one uh, that relates to the sender or the creator of this contract. And I just drop a million tokens on them. Okay, this is a million with, with two zeros. You notice the, the decimal is not in here. Um, the next thing I'll do is say the total supply, so all of the money we have, is just whatever that balance is. So it's a million. Uh, I'm going to set the name to moolah. I'm going to set the decimals to two. So it, it works sort of like a dollar in that sense. Uh, and I'm going to set the symbol to MOL. I mean, I'm just picking these things uh, randomly. And you can kind of sense an idea why you might not want to have uh, give one person uh, all of the money and then let them distribute it. That might be an, an, an issue. Okay, uh, I'm going to center up on this uh, function here. There are several uh, functions that we need to, to explain that... Uh, um, you know, that will expose the information that we have in this little balances thing. So when I call balance of and I pass it an address, which is going to end up in the variable owner, I want to return a balance, right? So I just want to say, you're going to say, how much does this person have? I want to return how much they have. So I return the balance of the owner. Okay, it just goes, peeks into that mapping, pulls out the balance and shows it. Um, we'll see that. Um, I'm also going to want to, I'll center the screen on this one. I also am going to want to define a transfer. And so it's going to take an address. Well, who do you want to send the money to? And a value, which is a number. How much do I want to send? Implied in here is it is from me. Now, is from the person that posed this transfer. We'll see a way to to not do that later. But uh, the important thing he here is whatever happens in this code here, it's going to return a bool or a boolean called success, whether or not it worked, right? This is pretty basic. So now this is going to follow what you uh, intuitively know as a money transfer. So I'm going to say if the balance of the sender, so the balance of the person creating this transaction, is bigger than or equal to the value. So as long as this is all their money or some less than that, some number less than that, and also the value is bigger than zero. 
So the, the value is not negative. You know, I don't want somebody to create a transaction that sends you negative $100 so that I get $100. That, that guards against that. It's kind of like a little nuance. You might want to use a library to, to, to uh, do transfers because you might not think of that, right? Okay, in the case that that's true, we're going to execute everything between these two uh, these two little, um, you know, brackets here. And that's going to say the balance of the sender is going to minus equals is just a convenient way to say take this value out. So subtract the value from the, the sender and the balance of the two, the receiver, we're going to plus equals. So we're going to add it. Right? That's sort of intuitive. Then I happen to emit a, trans, a transfer uh, uh, event that just says, oh, there's a transfer that happened from this to that of this value. And then I'm going to return true. This is our, our Boolean success. Okay, and if that if didn't work, if the, the person didn't have enough money, for example, or the value were negative, I'm going to return false. Pretty basic transfer right there. Okay. Anders, let me, yeah. let me just jump in with another clarifying question. Or, Please. Um, and again, have you push back, but Essentially, and again, push back if this is overgeneralizing or incorrect. What we're watching you do is something that the pseudonymous creator of Bitcoin, Satoshi Nakamoto, whether that was a woman, a man, or a group, we don't know for sure, did themselves at the genesis of Bitcoin, and that another much better known non-anonymous character, who we'll talk about later, Vitalik Buterin, did when he created Ethereum, Genesis, we all know that what that means in the biblical sense. The key point and the reason I jumped in is that the value that we're seeing on the screen, we are seeing literally the word value and the word balances, doesn't refer to a quantum of value measured by a fiat currency. In the genesis of a cryptocurrency, meaning a new blockchain supported by the cryptocurrency, we're talking about units of, in this case, moolah. Right. That's right. <laughs> it's measured in units. And the reason I'm saying that is that we are today, we won't say exactly what day we're recording, but we'll call it the middle of August of 2021. As of this morning, these bits and bytes that Satoshi created in the Genesis block and stipulated, of course, that there would never be more than a finite number, 21 million Bitcoin created. The aggregate of the bitcoins created so far, and I think we're at what you'd know better than I, at like 18 million so far. 18.5, yeah. Yeah. Um, they today, as of this morning, have a market cap of 875 billion. Whereas the, the minute that he hit the button that created the Genesis block, they had a monetary value in fiat terms of exactly zero. Similarly, with Vitalik, I think we're approaching 400 billion on Ethereum. It was a big weekend. For Ethereum, <laughs> but uh, we'll call it 375 billion as of this morning. Again, when he hit create in the genesis moment of Ethereum, the currency being ETH, E-T-H, capitalized, it had a monetary value measured in fiat terms or in gold terms of zero. So you've had the accretion of value. And now we go back to your screen. That's exactly where we are right now in this fictional world of creating a, 
Amula, so continue. That's right. Yeah, it's, yeah. It, this uh, will very likely remain absolutely zero forever. <laughs> uh, not, not least of you which, never because, <laughs> you never know. But I will deploy it on a test network, not the not the real network. Uh, where in a test key. network, everything is fake anyway. So yeah. Um, but yeah, okay. So so um, so then I have some other. I, I sort of hinted at the we had this way to transfer from another address to something else. And you can only do that if you're authorized. This is just, you need to implement these things in order to make it an ERC-20 coin. But uh, it's it's not really, you know, it's not really germane, I don't think, to this conversation. But this is a similar logic that just uh, takes into account sending the money from somewhere else, someone else and, and their, their approval just happens to be part of uh, the ERC 20 standard. It's not really, it's not really necessary. So that's it. There's the end of our contract right there. Okay. So that defines the entire thing. This, these few screens that we've looked at, now this is the entire, uh, uh contract. Okay. There's nothing else to it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to exit this. Uh, I'm going to use, uh, I'm using a package called truffle that allows me to, uh, compile, uh, that contract. Now this all set up, uh, to compile this contract into bytecode that can be used on the Ethereum network. Now, as you can see, it, it, it hints to me that it has compiled successfully and it's using some, you know, compiler here, a version, whatever it is. Great. Okay. Then I can say truffle migrate. Um, and I'm just gonna, I'm actually running a, uh, a test net on a screen, you know, kind of, oh, I didn't, uh, I've done this already. So it, uh, I have to say reset. So it actually blows all the old stuff away and recreates a new one. So here it'll go. Okay. Hey, can I jump in with another yeah. question? I'm just going to offer a blanket no, apology great. for jumping <laughs> in, but, but, um, I mean, you're one of the most accomplished coders in the world. But for other people, and I put my, myself maybe in that category, although I've benefited from our conversations over time, when they hear the verb compile, many people scratch their head and go, I don't know exactly what does that mean? Yeah. So like in 30 seconds or fewer, how would you define the verb compile in this context? You're about to compile. What yeah. does that mean? Yeah, it's a great question. Yeah. So, uh, when when we're writing code, we're we're doing that in in something. I mean, certainly not English, but it, it it's definitely easy to read or easier to read than what might be uh, you know just ones and zeros. When you compile something, you take some expression in text generally, and you turn it into some machine readable format. In this case, it's not quite the format that uh, a processor uh, uses, but it, but it's it's not far away. It just looks yeah. like a bunch of zeros and ones, um, and it will do it in the format that the Ethereum virtual machine uh, is going to execute. Uh, I am by far, by far, I'm very very far away from a, a, a great programmer. By the way, uh, I've I've met great programs. I, I'm not one of them. Just to be clear. Um, uh, but uh, I'll, I'll, I'll take the compliment, but I, you know, I, I have to correct you. Um, okay. So, so we've created this contract. Let me, let me show you behind the scenes, um, uh, what I've got here. Uh, so this is that blockchain essentially that's working behind the scenes. And when we created this transaction, it said transaction created, and it gives me an address. 
This is the address where the contract lives. Okay, so I can actually uh, interact with that um, with that contract. Um, so uh, in order to do so, um, what we can do is I'm going to just take a look at my notes uh, because I have this little notes file. Oops. And uh, let's see. So we've uh, we've uh, you know essentially created this contract, and it's much easier to kind of copy and paste this, so that's what I'm going to do. Um, we've created this contract, and my Truffle, you know, environment kind of knows that it, it was uh, deployed. So I'm going to grab a handle to it, okay, and I'm going to make this uh, little variable called moolah, and I'm going to, you know, wait till the contract is deployed, which, of course, it, it is. So it comes back quickly. So now I have this thing called moolah, that I can, uh, you know, do interesting, you know, queries on. And one of them, I'm going to just uh, copy this one from up here. One of them uh, is I'm going to run that total supply. Remember that? We we did this total, su total supply uh, thing. So this is a uh, something I can just read from the contract. You see it comes back instantly. And you'll see it's that 1 million with two extra zeros. Okay, so I'm just reading uh, the contract. Another thing I can do, I'm going to say accounts uh, zero to find out what account I have. And I have 9OF, that's the same one as this, that's great. So I can say, give me the balance of, I'm just saying moolah.balance of, the address that I use to create this contract. And sure enough, I have all of the money. Right? If I were to try any other address in here, it's it's not going to work. If I change this 9 to an 8 or something like that, you know, I'm not going to get something. That means 0, by the way. Um, so that's that's how we're going to uh, kind of interact with this contract and, um, you know, be able to do things. Now, some of the other things we can do is we can say transfer, you know, to some address somewhere. All right. This, this, it might be able to move it, but this is all happening on my internal version of the blockchain here. Let's do something that's, uh, you know, a little bit more interesting. Rather than uh, deploying this to my local copy of the blockchain, there is a, there are several Ethereum uh, test nets. One of them is called Rinkaby. Okay, so I'm going to truffle migrate this thing to Rinkaby. We'll see if it's there. I don't think it's... It may be there. It may not be there. We'll see. Okay. Uh, well, it is there. So let me just redo that. Um, and what this is going to do, it's just going to start from the top, recompile my contracts. And now we're sitting here waiting for my migration contract to be accepted by the test network. Now, this is the public test network. There, it was just accepted. Um, this is the public test network, so I could go and, and look at this transaction that was just made and, and uh, check to see whether or not this actually worked. Um, you know, while we're waiting for it to do that, we could. Okay, here we go. Here's the Moolah contract, and this is being now deployed on the global test net. Uh, it's this transaction, which hasn't yet been uh, accepted by the network, um, but uh, usually this happens in under a minute. So there we go. I've gotten the contract address, you know, this address here. Um, great. Now, um, let's just go over to a browser here, and I'm going to say, um, 
rinkabee.etherscan.io. So this is a, a uh, an explorer used to look at that test network. And if I paste in that contract, we should see it on the, the live network. And indeed, there we go. 32 seconds ago, I've I've pushed this contract out there. Okay. Here's the owner. Yeah. This is yeah. Do you have Let a question? me just jump in. Sure. You just use you just use the expression live network. We'll just underscore something you've already <laughs> mentioned a few times, which is this is the live test net. That's it's right. It's distinct from what we call the main net. The mainnet is the Ethereum protocol. So had you been creating yeah. in earnest, in seriousness, a cryptocurrency, you would have had to pay not only in your man hours, your labor, but gas. We'll come back to that because we yeah. saw the word gas. Yeah. Right. So the uh -huh. test net, you're using sort of fictional ETH to see how it's going. It's sort of like if you go to, you know, to Foxborough and Gillette, you got the real stadium and then there's like a practice field next to it. This is the practice field, the test net, right? Yeah. You can try out all kinds of things. In the real life, they can get hurt on the practice field in Foxborough, but in the real life, sorry, in the test world in which we're dwelling at this moment, you can't really get hurt. You're not, all you're spending is your time to, to play around with this, to see what happens, to debug. And that's been done very recently, and we can come back to this perhaps in part two, very recently, Ethereum underwent a really important upgrade. It's called EIP-1559. And that was subjected to many, many months and many, many thousands of persons hours of testing on testnet before they slowly pulled it over and implemented it. And then finally went live. What was it? We can go Thursday morning. Yeah. So anyhow, back, back to you. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, let me, let me just uh, explain what I did to get here. Uh, so yeah. I had to go to a faucet to which a faucet is just a website that you go to that that drips out uh, some amount of test net ether. And the reason that they'll just do this and put that out there is because there's no value to the test net. The test net at any time could be cut off, everything reset to zero and then start it again. So there are no there's no value to these coins, but you must have them in order to put transactions in there. Uh, if we go back to my screen here, you can see my balance is 17 point whatever. I've, I have some testnet ETH. This is completely valueless. However, I do get to see how it works across a, a, a number of computers across the internet. And, and, you know, there's a nice service called Etherscan that allows me to look at it in a web browser, which is kind of nice. Yeah, so let me just, Anders, jump in and talk about balances because we'll, viewers will recall that several minutes ago, you arbitrarily set the count to 1 million, yep. right? Mm -hmm. So, but in the real world, whether it's 1 million stipulated by the founders of a blockchain protocol and hence its associated cryptocurrency, whether the initial Genesis block stipulates 1 million, or in the case of Bitcoin, 21 million, or 1 billion, because we're starting with a monetary value in the real world, whether measured in gold or fiat currencies or logs, set to zero, that number is truly arbitrary over time to get to today's 875 billion in market cap in Bitcoin. It really didn't matter. This is the key point I'm driving toward, and, and you can either agree or disagree. Um, it didn't really matter that it was 21 million. What mattered was that it was specified and finite. And this yeah. becomes a real 
hot issue, pun intended, when we talk about the longer-term implications of the Ethereum upgrade that I alluded to a minute ago, which was 1559, because we're now burning, that's the term, the verb that's used, I think it's a rather unfortunate one, essentially destroying ETH, that fraction of the fee paid to put transactions on the Ethereum blockchain that constitutes the base fee is now getting destroyed, which creates a deflationary implication to ETH. And it's hard for people, I think, that are new, completely new to the blockchain world to understand, well, what does this 21 million mean? Like if everybody uses it and the Bitcoin maximalists are correct, won't these Bitcoins, each one, each of the 21 million be worth a billion dollars each? Theoretically, that's possible, right? Mm -hmm. uh, practically, maybe not. That depends. You can get <laughs> reasonable people can reasonably differ about that. The key yeah. point I want to drive back to, turn it back to you, is that $1 million, $1 million limit of units was arbitrary. You could achieve the same market capitalization long term for your Mueller if it were a real world cryptocurrency being created, even if it, that, that wholly arbitrary number were set by you as the founder at one billion rather than one million. Right. Right. That's exactly right. It's kind of like Berkshire's shares, you know, as long as you don't <laughs> add it. Berkshire A shares, right? So if you right, never right, add more, yeah, they just kind of go up in value. Um, yeah. Okay. So, uh, so uh, back to uh, back to the you know the semi real world like the test net. Okay, we can use other tools uh, such as MetaMask. This is a uh, browser extension that you use to uh, look at and create you know create transactions. Essentially, look at your account and create transactions. I happen to make this thing called that I call test account. Okay, so it has some. Uh, address and I happen to be looking at the the Rofston test network. You can tell that there are many to look at here. You know some of the others, and then there's the Ethereum mainnet. Okay, we're on the Rofston network. I, I happen to be using this address on the Rofston network. I could use it on both. I could use it on many. Uh, you know, so that's that's essentially uh, what I've done here. Now this is as far as our contract in the in the background is concerned, is some random. Uh, person on the internet. It doesn't, you know, it's got no money, right? So uh, what I can do, though, is I can, and also, you know, likewise, I have no idea about this, uh, you know, moolah token that I just created. Uh, so I, I have, there's like a manual step I kind of have to do to, to find it. And that's press this little add token button here. So what I've done is I've copied the contract address that I have, and I can just paste it uh, right here. And uh, this is the uh, Moolah token, and I have, so I'll hit add token, and, and here's my Moolah account. I have nothing in it, uh, which, of course, is true because we, uh, the creator of the contract has all the money. So I'm going to do something very similar to what we did before, but I'm going to do this on the Rinkeby testnet. And what I'll do is I'll just make a... Uh, a uh, variable called Moolah, and then I'm going to transfer it. Um, let's check the uh, address that I have here. Make sure that's okay. So this is probably the same address. Um, I'm going to say Moolah transfer. In this case, uh, if you look at this number here, that's actually 100 Moolah, right? 0.00. Right? We can make it, um, you know, 150 Moolah just to 
have you know some numbers. Now you see this. What this is doing is it's actually going to the Ropsten testnet and creating this transaction and attempting to send it. Um, and uh, it should take kind of right about the amount of time it took us to create the contract. And eventually it'll come back and tell us hopefully that the money has been moved. Well, it gives me an opportunity to to put a pin on two concepts. Hopefully we can explore in some Q and A if not a follow-up session, but and those would be, of course, scalability and finality, mm. because we're, we're seeing visually right now the challenge this creates. That there's this latency, there's a delay, and that's what latency means, and that's related to scalability. And then there's an open question about, okay, when it comes back and says, okay, the moolah, this new cryptocurrency you've created, has moved, is that transaction really final? Is there any way it can be reversed? Right. Yeah. Whether through, through a hack or through an ethical reversal, because the parties agree they need to reverse it. So we, yes. we can come back. Much yeah. to say on that one. Okay. <laughs> it looks like this transaction just finished. And you can see that uh, we we have a transaction. This is the, um, the uh, transaction ID. And it showed up in some block. And, um, you know, we have, you know, different pieces of information like the the to address and, and um, you know, the log that spits out. That's basically saying this worked. Uh, and I should be able to see it eventually in my uh, MetaMask if we were to uh, wait long enough, our little uh, balance here would uh, jump up. It's going to take it a little bit of time because the uh, MetaMask uh, system has to basically track the, um, the Robson network as well. And that's not their main incentive. It's mostly to track the, the live network. So that would take some time to show up. Sometimes it does. Um, and that's basically how money is transferred. And if you think about what we've done here, we've, we've really just you know, updated an account. We've changed the balance of the owner down 150 moolah. And this brand new account that we've never seen before has uh, 150 added to it. And now, of course, that one could uh, send the money around. You'll see, like, there's a there's sort of an intrinsic problem. I, I might have hinted at it before. But what the problem is, is this is a terrible token distribution strategy here. Um, we give all the money to one person and, and hope they equitably distribute it. Um, that might not be the best way to do it. Uh, these, these tokens are, of course, absolutely meaningless. And this is just a, an example so you can see how uh, ERC-20 contracts are made. But they're, uh, you know, they're really just uh, uh, updating rows in a database, in a sense, um, and, yeah. and creating rows. You know, it's uh, pretty basic. Um, so tying this back to some history we reviewed earlier, Anders, and then we can leap forward to other issues that we've already flagged. Sure. Um, but when when both Bitcoin and Ethereum were were launched in 2009, I'll say for Bitcoin and 2013 for Ethereum, respectively. Sorry, 2015 for Ethereum. It was invented in 2013, but didn't launch until early 2015. Right. Um, the distribution had a certain character um, by virtue of their having reached for Bitcoin we'll call it 900 billion, 875 as of today in market cap and, and Ethereum 375 billion, a network effect has been created through the further refinement of the distribution of the coins that have been created in e under uh, pursuant to each protocol. Talk about that because here you have the kind of perverse, unattractive, unhealthy 
um, starting assumption that one party, I'll say, uh, it could be an entity rather than a, a natural human being, holds all one million of the moolah you've created. Yeah. How do we get to the point where we get a massive network effect? Yeah. For what? Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, you bring up a great point. How do we? Uh, how do we get good token distribution? Now, in the sense that, uh, you know, if you've looked at the first uh, video that I did about how uh, money is created in my uh, fictitious blockchain that I'm in, you, you, you would see these Coinbase transactions. And that is just, uh, you know, a, the first transaction in each block creates money essentially out of nowhere and, and hands it to uh, whoever it was that solved that block. Uh, and, and presumably they put their own address in there, but they could put anything they wanted. Um, so that creates a distribution in uh, a known schedule. So in the case of Bitcoin, that's going to be roughly once every 10 minutes. Uh, in Ethereum, it's a, it's a bit quicker. It's more like every 15 seconds. And it is going to create some amount of uh, funds and deliver it to, to whoever is uh, putting some proof of work behind these blocks. And uh, the hope is that the more people are, that are doing this, you're going to get a wider uh, distribution rather than dropping it all in, in one moment uh, or like a pre-mine all on one address. Um, so that's that's the uh, the way around it. And probably what uh, proof of work blockchains are really very well suited to do. Um, you know, conversely, you might build a proof of stake system, which basically says whoever has some of the assets has the ability to sign a block uh, or solve a block and say, uh, you know, I, I pose that the new coin that's being created goes to me. Well, that's just going to make the rich richer. And that might not be the best way to get an equitable uh, distribution. So there's kind of competing uh, uh, thoughts on that. I don't know if that yeah, answers your question. question but... And of course, it's been alluded to as kind of a, a trilemma, right? Where you're... Yeah. The, the three potential aims of a of a of, a, of an attractive protocol, in many people's eyes, could be it's it's decentralized, which goes to the issue of trust, right, or trustlessness. So the more decentralized it is, the less trust you have to repose in a single party or a small group of parties. Or that's what centralization means. So decentralized is one aim of the trilemma: uh, scalability and security. And, uh, you know, we've, you've just created fictionally the, the moolah. Presumably, Anders, it's secure, right? It probably isn't very scalable. Um, yeah. And it's not decentralized at this point because all of the million are held by one owner. But with, with having introduced that, that sort of trilemma in those three terms of decentralization, scalability, and, and security, I'll just put it back to you to, to take it in whatever direction you want. There's so many other questions that I want to explore relating to your fantastic demo, both this one about how to create a smart contract and the earlier one, how to create a blockchain to begin with. You know, in, in, in the case of a public blockchain, when you say it's decentralized, it's really that whatever it is you're recording there has is uh, decentralized enough so that a single uh, a player uh, doesn't have the capacity to uh, overwrite or rewrite or change or, or whatever. They can only move forward and, and uh, you know, play within the, the guardrails. That is the hope of uh, public permissionless uh decentralized uh, digital assets. So in, in, uh, 
now, of course, at the beginning, you have this big problem where, you know, there really there's no assets and nobody cares and you need to kickstart a network effect. And that's really hard to do if you can do that. Uh, you get uh, and you can benefit from a token distribution. I'm going to kind of get to where I think you're driving toward, and that is uh, Ethereum and their strategy to go towards uh, ETH 2.0, which is a, a proof of stake. In order to get to a proof of stake network, I mean, one of the best ways to do that is to, it's not the only way, and, and certainly people have done this without doing that, is to start with a proof of work so that you get a, a token distribution that allows you to kickstart that network effect. And once you get to a certain point or certain level there, then you can start moving t forward toward a uh, proof of stake world where, uh, you know, you don't you don't really necessarily need the distribution uh, initially. Many, if not most of our viewers will be aware that in the foreseeable future, Ethereum will convert from a proof of work blockchain to a proof of stake blockchain. It's been many years in the coming. Many people are critical of the fact that it has taken so long because it was in the original white paper when Vitalik wrote it as a 19 year old in 2013, that it would become proof of stake. Uh, I regard it as a feature rather than a bug, as you know, of the entire Ethereum ecosystem that some of these changes take a long time because they tend to be beneficiaries of the refinement process. It's sort of like testnet several years of testing and back and forth, kind of like what you're doing, actually, when you alluded to research a minute ago, mm -hmm. just trying to put your thinking caps on, think through in, in a comprehensive way, everything that could go right or could go wrong. So proof of stake is something that, that they're supposed to flip that switch. The sort of rumor, maybe confirmed rumor is sometime in 2022, Ethereum will, will switch from proof of work to proof of stake, which has some very favorable environmental properties to it as well. I want to come back to that, Anders, but I don't want to lose the main thread. The purpose, the principal purpose of this session was to have you do what you've now done, which is to demonstrate a very simple example of how do you put together a smart contract. So let me ask this question with sort of my lawyer's cap on, if you will, because I've worked hard to overcome the handicap of that education, but I haven't quite done so. But, you know, a lawyer would look at some of these smart contracts and say, um, whatever the use case, whether it's insurance or retailing or supply chain security or identity or NFTs, which we can talk about in a minute, that whatever they are, they're not truly self-executing because there's really no way that, you know, the computer network can actually enforce the contract. Ultimately, you may need even like armies, right, physical force to enforce certain contracts. And just I'll stop there and let you speak to the the, in my view, all important question of enforceability. Yeah, that's a that's a great uh, topic. I mean, the the and you you bring up the the very salient point that for for this to work generally, it it absolutely needs uh you know it, it needs the enforcement uh, side to it, and that's why you're seeing it work first in things that are just uh, digital in nature. Uh, so in, in the you know, context of tracking tokens or token, you know, token ownership in a sense, uh, that's a that's a one way where you don't really need the enforceability outside the fact that, you know, whoever has the, the private key can has control over the asset and can move the asset. Um, however, when you start involving physical assets, 
uh, like, you know, let's just say you did an NFT that related to a specific piece of art in the physical world, you need some kind of a connector there. And the connector there, uh, you know, I would I would argue is really courts and, and law. And so in order to have something like that work, you might envision a, a situation where a court would have a key. Uh, you might pose a contract, a smart contract on chain that allows the court to have a, uh, you know, the ability to alter the transaction in some way uh, should, through due process, that be required. Uh, so I believe ultimately you will see uh, courts getting there uh, where they'll have a, a way to, you know, adjust the values uh, that the smart contract has has you know determined um, essentially a way to reverse uh, transactions if that were the way you want to handle it um, so but but also you brought up uh, you know enforced by armies uh, well that is you know that, that is of course one of the uh, you know connections there to the the legal system right uh, it, it you you uh, realize that there is that uh, ultimate sort of last step uh, available as well so uh, it gives the those contracts maybe a bit more teeth I, I would argue that like in the future we see these things uh, converge like we'll see them uh, operate separately in cases where digital assets are are the only thing that really matters and you know you might take the example of an in-game asset so i play a game uh to a point where my digital character has uh, reached a certain level and i've gotten bored with the game so i decide to sell that character well if that character is an nft and the assets that that character has let's say he had a sword and a shield or whatever it is uh, if that is all tracked on chain, then you could make an NFT out of that purely digital asset and sell it. And then somebody else coming to the game for the first time wants to buy a character that's not at the very beginning, that's gotten a certain level, whatever they can, uh, they can have that. So that allows this liquidity. And I think we'll see, uh, cases like that, uh, you know, kind of really expand, but ultimately it does need to make the, you know, take the jump over into the legal framework as well. Uh, now, I'm not an attorney. Uh, and I know several attorneys, yourself obviously included, and uh, I know enough to, you know, sort of be dangerous, but I've, I, you know, <laughs> cannot speak authoritatively. Well, you, you usefully pulled a few threads in. Let me pick up on a couple in turn. First, just definitionally, NFT, non-fungible token, just as with ERC-20, uh, which can help one create standardized tokens that go on the Ethereum blockchain. There's a similar set of standards. It's called EIP-721, Ethereum Improvement Proposal. For purposes of this video, there's really no distinction between ERC and e EIP. There are some distinctions, but we won't go into them here. It's just a way to standardize. So you could have created for our demo, maybe we'll do a future video if you're willing, where you create a 721 compliant NFT and show people how that gets done. Yeah. But regardless of whether it's an ERC-20 Anders or an EIP-721 NFT, we come back to the central question of security. And I wanted you to speak to the issue because by, by my lights, and again, it might be a flawed view, there are basically three levels of security that like fiduciaries in my 
my world, which is sort of, you know, the big world of institutional investing. I'm not saying it's an important world. I just mean it's a lot of money, right, and institutional investing broadly defined. You, you look at security through different prisms. In the context of looking as a fiduciary at digital assets, there's the inherent security of the token or NFT. There's a separate level of security, which would be the inherent security of the protocol. In this context, it might be Bitcoin or Ethereum. There are other protocols too. And then there's another one that gets us back to armies, which is sort of the network security. Like you've spent a lot of time, you're still affiliated with MIT. Actually in an earlier Real Vision episode, Silvio McCauley, who's done Algorand, spoke of, you know, ultimately none of this is secure because some physical actor kinetically like cut off Asia for two hours and steal a lot of value on a blockchain that is otherwise secure. That's network level security. I'd love for you to take a minute or two to walk through those three levels of security and what your gut tells you about the sustainability of all of this when we as fiduciaries have to think about those multiple levels of security. Yeah, that's, that's an excellent question. So I think you covered the, the armies part of it. Uh, that's, that's, that's absolutely the case when evaluating. So if I, let me just back up one second with uh, uh, 721s, with NFTs. They look very similar to what we just did with ERC-20s. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it is everything in ERC-20 is, but it's not fungible. Which which is valuable. There, there's there's value to in that uh, because it can track one and only one of something um, rather than make it swappable um, or interchangeable, I should say. So uh, there are a lot of problems. Like what happens if my transfer function there hadn't checked for negative values? Then you could just steal money from people, right? Is yeah. that a bug? Yes. Is that intentional? Probably not. I don't think I would make something that would violate the most basic uh, uh, premise of, of push money to make it actually pullable. Um, or it could just be something that's introduced down the line. Now, let's take a, uh, you know, the case of a uh, looking at any particular digital asset, right? Implemented as a smart contract. Uh, you very eloquently laid out the, the number of areas where that could go wrong. Well, first of all, uh, I could make a mistake, like I just talked about, uh, where where money can be taken away, or or even, uh, you know, the amount of money created does not equal, uh, you know, amount of money created does not equal the amount of money destroyed in a transaction. It doesn't net out to zero. Either it creates new money or it destroys money. Um, this would violate the the basics of a transfer. Um, well, what happens if? I uh, noticed that in maybe a much more complex tra uh, smart contract, I noticed that, hey, there might be another, you know, few problems that I have with this I hadn't thought of. So I might implement uh, a contract that has an upgradability component to it. And that's generally what you want if you want to be able to fix small bugs or add features, but it creates a problem because now there's a single key somewhere that somebody has that they can go in and replace the logic of the contract, swap it out for anything really, uh, which could drain all the value out of it. 
Uh, it might be comforting to know that that is there in case of a problem, but it could also, uh, you know, be used as, as as a weapon, and that would kind of fly in the face of the whole concept of decentralization, right? You want to be able to pose a contract that cannot be upgraded, cannot be changed, so that I know 20 years from now it's going to operate in the same way, one would hope. So uh, there is there is not just the bug problem, but there's also the the way contracts are made upgradable. That's a problem, uh, and then there's uh, you know curious ways in which smart contracts can interoperate. One of the things I could do in a smart contract is call another smart contract or require two other smart contracts to execute successfully before this one uh, w will actually execute. So either it all works or none of it works. Um, so there are various ways that in, that contracts can interoperate. Um, one new thing that really kind of just appeared is this concept of a flash loan, where you take out a loan for some amount of assets and then repay it all in the same transaction in the same block. So you might do that to take advantage of some ARB opportunity or there are a number of reasons you might do that, but it can also amplify an attack against some uh, small bug that you would have to otherwise marshal a lot of digital assets in order to exploit. So you create the, you know, you can see that the ecosystem has, you know, this is, this is specific really to the, uh, the DeFi ecosystem at this point, you have these, uh, you know, situations that you can get into that are really kind of hard to model from a, a risk perspective and deep understanding of these things, how they work and what possibly could go wrong and where all the key points are is, is really critical to being able to come up with a profile that is reliable, that, um, you know, you, you can, you can kind of, you know, be more sure of than, you just take it in on faith because there's X amount of total value locked in in this contract. Um, yeah. So let, let me jump in to say yeah. I think there are probably not a few people watching this video who, as you've just walked through that very helpful um, set of remarks, would say, I wonder if Anders, who's sort of a computer guy, actually knows what happened to Lehman Brothers in 2008. <laughs> and I know you know a little bit, maybe on one of our future walks around the pond, I can give you a little tutorial in exchange for a further tutorial for you. But the parallels are so striking and it leads me because you mentioned upgradability. I just can't resist injecting here kind of a question that we've actually explored in prior conversations just one-on-one, -on -one. but let's do it publicly. Because there are a lot of people that look at Bitcoin, particularly the maximalists, and say the absence of its founder, whether it's an individual or a group of individuals, is a feature, is a virtue, because it's immutable. That person or persons cannot come back and change the protocol. At least that's the stipulation. And that's a, that gives you the sense of, of security, to use that, that loaded term, that you don't have with Ethereum because it's young, very energetic founder, Vitalik Buterin is still with us. He's very active. I regard his presence, and I don't want to overstate this. I want to be really careful, but, but in an earlier life, you know, I sort of made my living initially when I entered the professional world, focused on constitutional law and the American founding. And there are 
when I read what Vitalik has written, the way he's moved through the world, and there are some other people that, in the founding group, it reminds me so much of our founding generation now, more familiar to Americans and people around the world through, through Hamilton, the play, and all that. We don't want to go there, but I want to come back to the idea that because of, say, what's going on in, in our government right now, it would be helpful, in my opinion, which I'm careful to label as such, if like James Madison would return <laughs> and say, no, 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 what's going on in the U.S. Senate, whatever your politics, is not what we had in mind. When did the hard fork occur? Like, how did you let this happen? We need an upgrade, right? And there are many people in my world, my former world, I still love to do it advocationally, who would say we need an upgrade. We need the equivalent constitutionally of EIP, Ethereum Improvement proposal. You alluded to it. Speak to the question of whether Ethereum and other blockchains that have emerged and yet that might yet emerge actually benefit from the active involvement of their founders, even though it seems to like contradict and undermine the central premise of trustlessness, which is decentralization. Yeah, it does. And, and thankfully, we have a uh, case study here, which I'm sure you're, you're, is in top of mind, uh, and that's the Ethereum Classic split uh, from Ethereum. So uh, first on the point of, uh, of calcification, I don't know what you would call, you would call it the, the um, inertia that you have if you have a system where all of the nodes on the network are essentially independently operated and they all have the same copy of the same thing and critically they all follow the same rule set so in order for that rule set to change that rule set has to be proposed by someone presumably that would be the the group that's managing it but it could be uh one of the founders or a founder like vitalik might uh pose a a big change uh and then eventually all of the nodes in the network would agree to that and then put in place the code necessary to make that change and then at some block in the future remember there's no time on on these networks it's just blocks when they reach block such and such they switch the logic to to uh, whatever else in the case of the uh, you know, the Ethereum Classic fork, uh, what happened was um, you might say Ethereum Classic is the purest. So there is a uh, transaction that happened and, and uh, whether it was a bug or, a, you know, whether it was on purpose or, or not, uh, somebody started to uh, take advantage of a, uh, a particular uh, DAO or, you know, the DAO, a particular uh, distributed autonomous organization that uh, had amassed a certain amount of funds. You can think of it like it was trying to be a VC on chain. And uh, there was this bug and, and an attacker was depleting all the assets away slowly. And we all saw this happening. And a number of people kind of got together and they said, look, we're going to fork the network to essentially erase that and change that contract into something that just gives you your money back and then move forward. Well, the purists, the purists didn't do that, and that's the um, Ethereum Classic uh, chain. And the chain that we know of as Ethereum, the 
Ethereum mainnet, uh, went with the really the altered version of of history. So uh, you can you know if you strictly look at the uh, price of the uh, you know the value of the whole network, you you could make the very strong argument that Ethereum uh, won that. Although uh, Ethereum Classic remains and and indeed is is grown lately, um, it's they are still uh, vastly different in overall value. Um, However, the if the goal of your network is to be, you know, something like digital gold, maybe uh, you you might benefit from not having a known founder. In this case, Satoshi Nakamoto of the uh, Bitcoin project. So this, uh, you know, inertia is is very much uh, toward. You know, I need it to work tomorrow the way it works today, and uh, I really don't need to experiment experiment with a thousand new features, a Turing complete uh, smart contracting language, uh, and we'll leave that uh, sort of to others. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, Shakespeare famously said, everybody's vices are their virtues taken to an extreme. <laughs> we can apply that. I mean, I think that applies in spades to like Alexander Hamilton, if you watch the play to Vitalik Buterin, if you follow his life and his trajectory. It applies to Bitcoin as a protocol. It applies to Ethereum as a protocol. The vices tend to be the virtues taken to an extreme. In the Bitcoin case, you've got sort of, some would say you use calcification. You hear the term often, it's ossified, ossification, right? Sort of the same thing. It's hardened. It's become almost immutable. The founder isn't around. Technically, I think you would agree from an engineering perspective, Anders, it could be changed, but yeah. You, yeah. You, you need to persuade, and this is the key point I'm driving toward, that when the Dow fork, as it's called, happened in 2016 as a result of this malicious hack of a certain DAO or decentralized autonomous organization was amassing a certain number of ETH, the community rallied and Vitalik was, a, was an important part of it to say, we don't want that. So can we muster a majority to fork the chain so that we can create a new chain that's free of that defect and particularly so that we can uh, essentially not let that malicious actor get away with your ill-gotten wealth, right? Mm -hmm. And so they forked it and some people said, no, 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 that violates the central premise of decentralization. We're gonna keep the other fork going and that became what's now called Ethereum Classic. I don't have the capitalization on my screen right now. As you said, it's starting to pick up, but that's happening yeah. to a lot of cryptocurrencies that have been created of <laughs> yeah. late, right? We're in a bit yeah. of a, who knows if we're in a bull market or not. Yeah. But, but um, what I want to have you now turn to, though, is we don't have to spend too, too much time on it, but if you don't mind, let's just sort of nail flush to the plank this idea of the environmental aspects of proof of work versus proof of stake. Mm -hmm. That's clearly, I think, a distinguishing virtue of proof of stake relative to proof of work. You might just explain technologically in 30 seconds why that's the case. And if you see other really commanding virtues from proof of stake as distinct from proof of work, because this has really important implications, I think, very long term for Bitcoin after we reach, we will never get, we're not going to get to the 21 million cap until, you know, more than a century from now. But when we get to a practical limit as we approach that cap asymptotically, just speak to that collection of, of challenges, if you would. Yeah. So uh, proof of work is essentially trading, you know, thermodynamic energy for security. 
Um, and uh, what what you're doing is you're essentially doing a nonsensical, uh, you're trying to solve a puzzle, a nonsensical puzzle to just arrive at the answer for, um, you know, that, that satisfies the uh, the network's, uh, you know, code, the way that it's, uh, the problem that it has posed. And that taken to the extreme can, you know, eat a lot of energy. Now, the, the salient points in this, I think, are that while it, it can take a lot of energy, it's also, first of all, very easy to calculate. It's, it's very clear how, given the difficulty setting, because that is adjusted to uh, account for new mining capacity that comes onto the network or mining capacity that leaves, it dynamically adjusts. So you can just know essentially how many joules of energy were expended to uh, create the security that we have at this point. Uh, that's very conveniently calculatable. There are ways that um, you know you can think of that as a as a battery, as a way to to capture that energy and and save it somewhere. So in that sense, you know, it it might do very well in a lot of renewable situations. Um, you know, uh, but long term, you you will still have to be doing this uh, work in order to secure uh, the network in a proof of work context. Conversely, a proof of stake system, uh, you know, it doesn't require that vast amount of of power output in the form of electricity to uh, secure the network. Rather, what I'm doing is I'm proving that I have a certain amount of assets and I'm because the fact that I've got such an investment here, I probably won't pose something that's incorrect to put that pile of assets at risk. So I might be more trusted than just, you know, an average anyone on the internet. So uh, in order to pose those uh blocks really though that that takes a you know the am amount of energy that I would have available on my cell phone a very small amount of energy non-zero but it's 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 relatively small um, there are some other things I have to expend in order to do that I do need to expend a bunch of uh, disk space uh, and network throughput in order to do that I have to do that in proof of work as well but it's not the majority of the equation. Um, the amount of, uh, you know, kind of energy or whatever that I have to put in to run a proof of state net stake network is comparatively very low. There are other strategies as well, um, you know, and they, they tend to swap uh, different things. They swap centralization uh, for, um, you know, for, for certain efficiencies. And they, you know, can you look at uh, Solana? which kind of swaps some centralization for, uh, you know, in order to operate a node, you have to have uh, relatively beefy hardware and a good internet connection is probably best run within a farm context, uh, a server farm context. So that might not be quite as accessible to the weekend uh, uh, hacker kind of person playing in their basement with a, with a computer and a, and a home, like a residential internet connection. Uh, maybe that, that might not be as approachable. So there are different things you can do and, and you know, different ways that you can play it. Um, yeah, I don't know that I got to the heart of the, the question there. but So, Anders, you just mentioned Solana. I just want yeah. to have you describe for the audience what Solana is. One of several of these blockchain-based protocols that have come on the scene, what it seeks to do to address one of the three elements of the trilemma 
we alluded to earlier, which is, of course, scalability. We talked about the trilemma being how do you achieve decentralization in a highly scalable way that can serve the whole planet that is nonetheless secure. So just using it briefly as an example, what does Solana seek to do to address the scalability element of that trilemma? Yeah, so Solana is a uh, an independent blockchain that uh, seeks to to really maximize as much as possible the uh, number of transactions a second. To give you an idea, it's like forty to sixty thousand transactions per second right now for some centralization. So uh, the number of nodes on the Ethereum network or the number of nodes on the Bitcoin network is uh, large compared to the small number of nodes on the Solana network. And that is, of course, because the Solana node has a, a much higher base hardware requirement, uh, a lot more uh, bandwidth requirement. Latency is a big deal. Um, but it's a, it's a public permissionless blockchain, much like Ethereum and uh, Bitcoin. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's made different trade-offs in order to uh, really, you know, really what it's, it's able to do is operate a, um, you know, an online order book, basically an order book on chain. Uh, whereas that's not really practical in the Ethereum uh, universe with, uh, you know, the Ethereum base layer, I should say, level, you know, layer one, uh, where it's, you know, probably 10, 20 transactions a second is is kind of common for Ethereum. So uh, so it's it's meant to trade a little bit of the centralization for, uh, you know, a bunch of speed. Um, Anders, let me shift gears for a minute, if I, I would. You and I have talked about this offline a little bit. I find it hugely interesting. I, I think the audience would benefit from your perspective really quickly on what criteria do you yourself think it makes sense to use in time to determine the probability that any given crypto project, I'm using that broad term by design, will actually achieve critical mass, what we would call sort of orbital velocity and achieve the network effects that we talked about earlier in this recording. Yeah, well, so I, I get this uh, uh, quite a bit, and there's, um, you know, especially back before uh, before when when Bitcoin was really called, you know, distributed ledger technology. Um, uh, there, there is, there were a number of people coming with with projects, and they're saying, "Does this fit?" Um, you know, and and. This is I'm really kind of harkening back to 2017-ish when uh, the term blockchain was essentially uh, dropped on like pixie dust onto projects and and won't this be great? Well, the answer is generally no in in most scenarios. You got to think about you have a technology that is uh, slower, far slower. Uh, really, really inefficient. You have all the nodes on the network talking to all the other nodes, about all the tra all the data. It's got to go to all the nodes, and they all have to remember it forever. And uh, you, you know that's just the way it is. Uh, Twenty years on, you're still remembering that this transaction 20 years ago existed. Yes, right. Um, and you you have all of these inefficiencies, and we spoke about the the. Uh, power inefficiency. Uh, you have all of these inefficiencies of doing that. Why would you possibly use a blockchain? Well, see for the fact that a blockchain creates uh, a new layer of trust on the internet that previously didn't exist. So if your project, whatever it is you're trying to do, requires 
distributed public consensus about something more like a digital asset, something that that is uh, the ownership of which is controllable with a private key, that would fit. That might fit a lot better. So as we've seen, there are a number of cryptocurrencies that attempt to do that. Now, there are many other uh, pieces to this puzzle. Uh, how do I make something, you know, actually reach uh, and get a network effect, et cetera? Well, I, I'm not, uh, you know, a, uh, like I'm not really sitting in a seat where I can say what will and won't work for that uh, because that is a multifac multifaceted problem. Um, but uh, for the most part, you know, I, you have you have projects that that come in like uh, supply chain uh, management that might fit. I mean, you have a bunch of uh, distinct actors that have a benefit if they all come together to agree on where, you know, who has a shipment at a single point in time, but they all have a disincentive uh, there. They all want to kind of say, well, I didn't have it yet. I'm not the one who slowed it down. It was this person, that company or that company. So you might have a, uh, you know, a, like a, some kind of an organization that manages this, like a trade organization, or you might just have the public trustless, you know, layer of a blockchain supply that for you and take advantage of that. Another thing that might fit might be voting. You know, here's something that's very, very important to know which candidate got the most votes, but you don't individually want to expose who you voted for, et cetera. Just the fact that you voted, your vote rather, is, is uh, included amongst the total, right? So, you know, if you think about what you're trying to do and say, does it fit these scenarios, what works and what doesn't, um, that goes, uh, I think, a long way into figuring out what will, uh, you know, what, what will work or not right off the bat, really. Thanks. I, I got two more topics and then we'll let you go. Uh, one you just triggered, which I would appreciate just a brief discussion from you about. I think the audience would as well. Um, and that's open source software, because I think many people not in the programming world conflate um, to their detriment open source software with a term we've kicked about multiple times in this conversation, which is decentralization. And they're not synonymous. And you might distinguish the two, how you can have open source software. And I'm asking this question, Anders, precisely because there are so many people that I think logically, rightly, and wisely look at vast decentralized projects of any kind and say they can never be effective in achieving their goals because there's not centralized management to determine when a decision has to be made, what that right decision is. Full stop, back to you to explain the distinction between open source software on the one hand and decentralization on the other. I'm glad you brought this up. So open source software is open sourcing or making public how it works. It is not making public what it's working on. And that's a, that's a critical difference. So if you know how it works, you can run it. And run it, you know, at home on your on your laptop, for example. What it is working on, presumably, if I'm running, you know, a, a Moolah coin or something locally on my own machine, you know, what it is working on is not really very valuable. However, uh, if you take something and you uh, you operate the thing that you're operating on is uh, private, 
right? That, that would work a lot better. So in the case of like Amazon, we might say, you know, here's a website and they have many products and then there's a customer list and that's probably pretty valuable. And it probably also includes in some way or another credit card information or, or financial information for these people. So how, now they're not open source, but how they, how that works versus what it works on, you can see that there's sort of the dichotomy there. If uh, another way to think about that is operating systems. If you write an operating system, the best way to do it initially is to have it closed source, keep it secret. Don't show people how it works because they're going to find all kinds of problems with it. Rather, put this black box out there and have people use it. And uh, a number of companies have, have uh, tried to do that, uh, Microsoft being a notable one. Uh, however, there is another project, Linux in this case, which is an open source project that shows you how it all works. And initially, Windows is way better than Linux uh, from a security context because all of Linux problems are open and available for people to exploit but critically also work on and submit fixes. And slowly over time, you get a system that is much, much more secure rather than a black box that people attempt to probe and occasionally at random times find a solution that, that you know, has a problem. Um, so uh, I, I forget exactly the, the second part of your question, but... Uh, no, no, that's that you, you've addressed the, the gist of my question. I got one more for you triggered by the, your use of the term a second ago black box, because one of the hottest issues in digital asset ecosystem very broadly defined today is whether stable coins in general and Tether in particular can be relied upon. And so it sounds like maybe an illogical segue from talking about open source software to talking about Tether and stable coins. But in my mind, however enfeebled, it's a logical segue because there are aspects of Tether. Indeed, there are actually aspects of USDC, which is Circles, your former employer's stable coin, that are opaque. And there are other aspects that are transparent. I think many in the, in the sort of digital asset world and, and beyond it in finance generally are clamoring for more transparency as distinct from opacity with respect to the assets that Tether holds to support its claim that, that that digital asset is sound and secure because it's backed by sufficient reserves. So that's a swirl of issues about transparency versus opacity. I'd love to have you address them in the context of stablecoin. Do you think it has real staying power and can private stablecoins, which are inherently, at least today with Tether and, and USDC from Circle, centralized, can they survive a world in which CBDCs become an ever larger fraction of global commerce? Yeah, uh, great question. So I, I have no inside information really about Tether or, or at sure. this point about Circle, et cetera. So with that, yeah. that caveat, and these are just my opinions. Uh, yeah, so, so I think what uh, running stable coins on public networks has created is a demand for a bit more transparency about how the assets work, because we know how the flows work on the public networks because they're just available and open uh, to be able to be followed and, and tracked. Um, so if you're building a, uh, a project like that, uh, you know, 
you you might want to uh, make it a little bit more decentralized in some way, and that is in fact what we did at uh, Circle when we when we created USDC. And the the intent there is to have a system where you can have multiple issuers and multiple redemption um, points, not just a single company. And so there's. Uh, Circles uh, USDC actually is uh, under the center foundation of which Circle and, and Coinbase and others are, are yeah. members. Um, so that, yeah. that is a potential way to handle that. Um, as to how the assets are backed, well, I'm, I'm the computer guy, not the finance guy. I don't you know, exactly know, but I, I you know, I'm very interested in, in sort of seeing how they uh, – uh, you know, do attestation, attestations uh, into the future. Um, to the question about how how these exist, and, and this is again my, my you know this is just a, a guess really where where I think this would go. Um, I don't know if you were to be a, a nation state whether or not you would implement something on this or that public network, Ethereum or, or Solana or whatever. That that seems like where stable coins are well positioned and that might be yeah. where they compete. Um, that doesn't say a, a stable coin might elect or might not elect to uh, use a CDBC as a backing. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure. Uh, they may choose to do that, um, and that might be an interesting way it could go. I, I, I don't see uh, like if if a certain various nations were to uh, implement central bank digital currencies that you would see stable coins disappear overnight. Because my guess would be, um, you know, central bank digital currencies might be more used for transactions. Uh, small transactions similar to, uh, you know, maybe to cash or something like that, whereas that's definitely not the purview of uh, stable coins, at least on layer one. You don't go and buy a coffee with, uh, you know, USDC or something like that uh, yet. Uh, maybe that happens on layer two, et cetera. But, like, it'd be interesting to see how that goes. Uh, it seems to me like uh, a future might be more, uh, you know, more of how they all kind of work together as opposed to, you know, one winning or not. I, I don't see that as very likely, personally. Yeah. Well, listen, I know you've got important work to get back to, Anders. I want to thank you very much for your time today. I'll, I'll say in closing, we started the episode by saying you're among Real Vision's goats by dint of the ratio of the thumbs up to thumbs down on the first episode that you appeared on. And, and I think like, you know, sort of Brady in football and more recently Kipchoge in marathoning, I know you love long distance running. Um, they were both willing to sort of get back into the arena, even when they had already had sort of achieved that status and, and be retested. And they both passed that test with flying colors. So did Alice and Felix uh, in Tokyo. And you've just done so here. So <laughs> thank you very much for all of your time. And I look forward to our, I have my own views on Tether, by the way, which I will share with you privately on our next walk around the pond, which I look forward to in the near future. I look forward to that as well. Thanks very much. Uh, this was a lot of fun. Really appreciate it. Um, your questions yeah, well, are fantastic. Uh, thanks, Anders. See you soon. Take care. Welcome to the end of the video. We know that on average, 85% of you who start a video on Real Vision finish it. That's extraordinary. On Facebook, it would just be 4%.
And that's because Real Vision creates the most engaging content in the entire media world. Let us help you grow your business by making video content that really engages your customers. Email us at customvideo at realvision.com.